All right. Hello, everyone. Thanks for uh, tuning in to episode two of Mike and Kit. Today we're going to be covering three chapters like last time, going through chapters seven, eight, and nine of Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. And to kick it off, we'll start with seven. This chapter covers the economics of big business. I'm going to read an opening quote by Frederick Bastiat. It reads, Competition always has been and always will be troublesome to those who have to meet it. Now, Kit, when you, uh, when you hear something like that, what is that? Uh, does that resonate with you? Is that something you've considered before? Basically, what I take out of it is that um, when businesses are competing against each other, um, it's creating this hostile environment where all of a sudden businesses have to continue to change, always um, be thinking about new ideas and how they can contain their uh, market while other competitors are trying to step in and uh, Know, take those customers away from them. And if we look back to some of our previous chapters, um, one of the major problems that big businesses have, especially with uh, leadership, is that their CEOs become complacent and you know they're they're being very successful and then all of a sudden they see this, you know, maybe a different but sort of the same competitor that's tapping into their market and they don't want to tap into that different sort of different industry just because they've been successful in the past where they are and it causes those businesses to fail yeah I agree um, yeah I, uh, for me I think it resonates with me because uh, it, it makes me think that that businesses will fail and it's inevitable and uh, there's nothing you can do to stop it and um, if you're in the business of competition, capitalism, if you're in that business, then um, it's something you have to expect. And constantly having other businesses check, be a check on, on your business is, is good, it's healthy, and it keeps the economy going. Yeah, it's kind of a counter, not necessarily a counterintuitive quote, but I guess it would be counterintuitive for people who have studied economics. Because, you know, as a layperson, you would think, oh, competition's a bad thing because we want everyone to be equal. And, you know, something, you know some of the main things that we've grown up with is millennials. But as an economist, competition is a great thing. And it, you know, allows businesses to create new ideas and reduce costs and produce more efficient goods for consumers out there. Um, and so when you hear... Competition always has been and always will be troublesome to those who have to meet it. Um, it makes me think that it's saying competition is bad, but it's just saying that competition makes things difficult for those who are competing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Serves as a driving force. Makes you do. Yeah. Uh, makes you produce the most that you can produce at the lowest cost. Right, right. And, uh, you know, this chapter also talks about how uh, when you compare government agencies to those of um, capitalist agencies or capitalist businesses, you there's a noticeable difference between the kind of services that you get, mm -hmm. the type of products that you get. Um, I know that one of the examples was uh, insurance companies. Private insurance companies are more quick to the punch when they get when there's a natural disaster and um, that's for several reasons uh, number one yeah, people are going to tell uh, you know the rest of the country if their insurance company dilly dallies on their way over to help them uh -huh. and they're not, you know number two they're not going to uh, they're going to move insurance companies but when you compare that to a government agency the government agencies are noticeably slower to respond and that's just because uh, there's no competition with the government. There's always going to be 
that insurance company or that insurance agency rather than um, a lot of competitors. Uh huh. So so essentially, um, kind of what you're hinting at is that many government agencies, if not all government agencies, are actually monopolies or operate in the same way that a private monopoly would operate. That being that they don't have competition, they, they may be the only producer of a certain good, and they may be uh, legally the only person that's able to provide that good. And so when you have a market system, whether it be private or public, and there is only one producer of that good, um, that producer does not have a check on their system. Um, in other words, there's no incentive for them to charge the lowest price uh, and produce the most amount of goods at that low price. Um, when in fact they can just meet their quota, maybe their government-imposed quota, and produce X amount of goods per week and still receive the same pay. So um, it, it all boils down to incentives like we were discussing last week. Yeah, I think that the government agencies, although they appear as monopolies because there's only one of them, and so you'd think it would be a model, uh, um, the same kind of outcome as a typical monopoly, Yeah, I think that uh, Thomas Sowell... Uh, distinguishes them though, because um, when he talks about the monopolies, uh, which something was com was really counterintuitive to me, and especially um, compared to what the things we, the things we learned uh, at UCSB, where you'd think, okay, there's a monopoly, and so obviously they're going to charge the highest price possible for their good. Yeah. Um, which he does talk about, but he also says that there there's other constraints that are causing these monopolies to reduce their prices. Like if you have um, a good that is you know, created from multiple you know, resources, those resources limit the business's ability to set a really high price. And also, um, you know, people and their demand also helps to set those prices as well. Um, but what he does talk about is that um, because that they're able to control prices um, better than a business that's in that has competition, mm -hmm. they do produce less of the good because um, the supply gets bought up by the uh, people that are purchasing it. Yeah, yeah. I I remember reading that. So, so his idea was that um, it it overall produces monopolies overall produce less output of a particular good than would uh, normally be produced otherwise if there was uh, competition in that market. So. Um, Trying to think of an example. It's like where a, uh, a monopolist is setting the price equal to the marginal cost of production. So basically, that means that consumers are only willing to spend as much as it would uh, cover to cost of the production. And so, because of that, um, because they're selling at a higher rate per product, yeah. um, they meet that cost of production earlier. Because no matter what, even if a monopolistic company is selling apples, people have, um, peop uh, a person's demand doesn't change based off of, um, the pr well, it does change based off the price of an apple, but like the quantity a person is willing to um, taken at that level doesn't really change. Okay. See, it's, uh, monopoly. So, so you're saying that the, the government, or not the government, sorry, the monopoly set uh, price uh, 
even though it's an artificially higher price, it's not going to really change or decrease the consumer's demand for that particular good? Um, no, I think that uh, I kind of worded it incorrectly. I think that the consumers tend to buy less of the product than they would at a lower and more naturally competitive price. Yeah. And so because of this, uh, the companies that are monopolies, it's, it's kind of hard to say companies when you use monopolies, yeah. um, end up selling less. Okay. I, 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 uh, I, I think I understand what you're saying. and Because um, people are only willing to spend so much on certain things. You know, um, like a cab, let's say. You know, you can walk, you can take the bus. There's other avenues, really, to take. And so if a cab company had a monopoly on it um, and they were charging outrageous prices, not as many people would be taking cabs. Um, and so the supply of cabs would go down. Mm -hmm. And um, still going off of monopolies, I, I I thought it was interesting when Sol made the point of he he sort of uh, made this point throughout his monopoly discussion that although monopolies are bad for the economy, they're not always things that last. Um, without any legislation that's passed or any uh, type of regulation that's placed on an industry um, eventually in one way or another like you were saying earlier uh, the monopoly is constrained they they do have to cover their own costs and there are ways for other businesses uh, to enter into their marketplace if there aren't any uh, regulations in place that will uh, limit that. Like, for instance, um, one such business would be uh, um, uh, waste management. So um, trash, trash collectors. Um, in some cities, they have private businesses that do so, and they're on uh, government contracts. And there's not now there may be other reasons why there's there's not other um, competing waste management uh, businesses in place in a particular community but uh, for the sake of this argument um, let's just say that people didn't mind if there was more garbage collectors in their community people were okay with it even if they were okay with it uh, there are certain laws in place in many local governments that that don't allow uh, other competing companies to come in and maybe offer a lower cost or uh, uh, offer a different platform on which to uh, conduct their service. And uh, at the end of the day, um, maybe uh, with the prices that that sole monopoly or oligopoly has in place, um, maybe that's artificially high. And maybe because of that, they're not collecting garbage as much as they would if there were other businesses in place. Maybe people would want it collected twice as much. Um, and that's, you know, same idea. It would be like you were talking about apples, apple producers, apple farmers. Maybe people would want more if there was no... Uh, 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 well, definitely, yeah. yeah. That's, that's definitely what would happen if... If it was like a trash collector, yeah, um, because the prices are so high. Uh huh. Uh, if it was a monopoly, monopolistic trash collector, people would hold on to their trash for longer they until um, they were forced to, or at least until their um, until the burden of holding that trash outweighed the cost of whatever the producer was, you know, charging. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's what it would cost. Cause it would cause the uh, trash collector to collect less per stop, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah, because, exactly. Because people would be holding more. 
and you wouldn't have a choice. Uh, you'd have to. And that trash collector is able to decide how much they want to collect, not really based on consumer demand, but more based on just you know what their business, what they want their business model to be. They don't really have to um, take into consideration demand because there is no competing forces. So it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Right. The thing that I was trying to talk about earlier that I kind of got a little confused about yeah. is basically that when a monopoly is selling things, mm -hmm. they still have to deal with consumer demand and consumer willingness to buy things. And um, although a consumer's marginal willingness to buy things changes based off of their based off of the price of the product, um, their total willingness to buy does not change. And that's why when a um, monopoly sends the prices up in an insane fashion, a they have to deal with the fact that um, there's going to be less sales because people are you know still have the same desire for um, or need for a good ah. I think need would be the word so because they they need something at an X amount um, although it changes um, although their demand for it changes based off price um, when there's a high price there's you know there's a set level that they're going to um, take on before they stop buying and um, building off of that, uh, another restriction that would be on a monopoly is those same consumers um, allocating different resources, substitutes for a particular good, where in some cases they may uh, buy, I'm not sure, uh, glass plates or ceramic plates. Now they'll buy plastic plates if the, the price of, or let's say there was a, a sole producer, uh, two producers of glass and ceramic plates, and the prices were insanely high. Then producers of plastic, let's say maybe they had the same price, they would lower their price uh, incrementally in order to capture some of those consumers. And so that, that, is, that, that could be another check on a monopoly. Could be, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that reflects what I was talking about, too, because yeah. you know, people need plates. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to eat. Um, yeah. And although a monopoly is going to set a really high price, people will, there will be people that are willing to pay that price. Otherwise, the monopoly would just lower their price. But because there's alternatives, um, that monopoly will, ha will lose out on sales because of that. Mm-hmm. And because consumers aren't willing to pay at that price for, you know, X amount of sales. Yeah. And, um, I think that we should talk about uh, cartels, and then we'll move on to the next chapter where the real, like, cool stuff is. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So he talks about cartels, which are basically just, like, People getting together from different, uh, from the same industry, from different companies that agree to set one baseline price, which basically acts as a monopoly because they're able to control um, and set a price rather than see what uh, the true co competitive price is. And when this happens, uh, this usually fails because you know people are untrustworthy, especially when it's different competitors out there. Um, and so he touches on it, basically says that it works the same way as a monopoly, but because uh, cartels can't really work together, they fail. But he does uh, have one example, the steel industry that did succeed in having a well-placed cartel because they all set the price to the price of um, shipping uh, the fixed price of steel and the shipping costs from Pittsburgh to um, somewhere else. And because everyone set this exact price, it was able to actually effectively work as a cartel rather than other industries where they had failed. Yeah, yeah. So they were able, in the steel industry, 
to come to sort of a policy agreement um, where they all agreed that no matter what the distance, right, it didn't matter the distance of travel, uh, they would pay a set fee for um, any travel distance. So that just makes me think, if they were going to charge the same fee uh, to ship goods, then that would create a disincentive to ship it long distance and use more resources when they're going to charge the same price. You, you would think that they would rather make a lot of mini small shipments, maybe to local regions, um, than... Uh, a few longer distance shipments, and I don't know if he discusses that at all. I don't. I don't remember that, but um, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thought. So so, so you're it, saying that because they're all selling it at the exact same price, you would want to sell it somewhere closer to where it's manufactured. Yeah, I totally see that. Yeah, like why why would they want to sell something, you know, from Pittsburgh to Colorado when they could just send something from Pittsburgh to New York and charge the same fee? Now, is this fee that they're charging the this is the fee they charge on the the customer, on their client? Yeah. Okay. So it's not their cost. It's not their cost, right? It's 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 the fee for their services. This was where all steel prices in the U.S. were based off the fixed price plus transporting it from Pittsburgh. Got it. So Cartel, now he he talks about some of the uh, the downside to cartels and how how inevitably uh, they don't always last. And I, I remember one of those reasons being that people simply don't or. Businesses simply don't uh, uphold their their promises, and uh, often they would uh, behind the back of other uh, members of the uh, cartel would maybe charge lower prices to particular clients and uh, build relationships in order to acquire more business than their uh, cartel competitors, if you will. Yeah, definitely, um, especially when you have illegal cartels. Uh, he talks about that, too, where, where it's, it's really hard to trust people when um, there's always these tiny little mini deals that are going on within the cartel, and it just ends up falling apart. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the steel business that he was talking about, um, I don't think he mentioned this, but uh, he may have. Did he bring up Carnegie? I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, I, I never considered Carnegie to be part of a uh, cartel, but when I think of U.S. Steel, I, I think of Carnegie. So that would be an interesting topic to do some research on. Because when you think of Carnegie, yeah, you, you think of you know capitalism in its purest form. You don't think of uh, you know non-competition. I think that uh, we'll just touch on the some of the we touched on government responses to monopolies uh, a little bit, um, but let's talk about some market responses. I mean, just off the the hinge here, a businesses step into a mar uh, a monopoly's territory, um, creating competition. That's definitely uh, one uh, outside products too that are basically supplements or substitutes excuse me for the product start popping up everywhere um, like you were talking about before um, do you have any others any market responses um, yeah. let's see here I guess uh, there are ways in which smaller businesses um, could find a new way, uh, an innovative way of pro of producing a particular good that a monopoly may have produced for quite some time, and uh, they may find a way to enter enter the market. I don't know exactly how they would do so, but um, 
I remember a discussion on that. Does that, does that, do you remember that at all? How smaller companies would compete? Yeah, how, how smaller companies uh, would find their way into a particular market that was uh, uh, dominated by a monopoly. Let's see. So, I think it was finding loopholes around some of the government constraints that were in place. Um, Probably also to tap into when um, a, I mean, if a monopoly is charging really high prices for their good, if a, a smaller company can create a substitute good, um, then they can just come in at a lower price. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that kind of, um, I think we'll get into it later, uh, but another one of the things that Soul talks about is the fact that there's this common misconception that monopolies are going to set such low prices that it runs competitors out of business, but apparently there's never been any evidence of this whatsoever. Um, I think we'll get into that when we uh, go through the market and non-market economies. Yeah, I think so too. So, uh, yeah, that, that really is. I, uh, I really like that chapter. It was interesting. So, so moving on to chapter eight, regulation and antitrust laws. So, um, I'm going to read the opening quote. Uh, it's by George Stigler. Competition is not easily suppressed even where there are only a few independent firms, competition is a tough weed, not a delicate flower. It's a, it's a tough, it's a tough weed. It's not, it's not a delicate flower. So it's in many ways, it's persistent. Uh, you could try and kill competition. Um, and in, in many ways, even with the cartel, eventually there was competition within the cartel. Uh, so it, that's a good example. It, it's really hard to suppress competition. Competition is a, a natural human emergence. It's, a, it's, it's, it's something that occurs without anyone's intention. Yeah, and uh, I really like that quote, uh, especially after reading the chapter, because that definitely gets to the heart of this chapter, because he stresses how uh, regulators and lawyers are constantly talking about, oh, if we let this monopoly you know, run its course, then it's going to kill competition. Yeah. But that's not the case. What they're really talking about is how competitors are going to are going to die out. Mm -hmm. so they're, they're trying to say, oh, competition's going to die, but really they're confusing that with, oh, co some competitors are going to lose. And exactly. Yeah, they're protecting the competitors. They're not protecting competition. So what they're doing is they're protecting inefficient, basically not as good competitors that yeah. would normally, if it wasn't for them, die out and they wouldn't be in existence anymore because they weren't able to offer that good or service uh, in the most uh, you know attractive way to the customer and uh, you know it artificially keeps them in business and it may seem like a good thing because maybe you're keeping I don't know hundreds maybe thousands of employees still at work and you know, it, it seems like it's good. They're, they're making a wage. They're contributing to the economy. But what you don't see is the wages and the work and the goods and services that those same employees could be producing at another job or another occupation, in which case they would be more efficient because that never happens. So there's nothing to compare it to. And in, in their eyes, the only thing you can compare it to is nothing. So it's either these people are out of work and they're not producing anything or they're at work and they're producing this. 
But what they don't compare, compare it to is what they're producing now being artificially at work with what they could be producing at a more efficient occupation. So it's hard to, it's hard to compare things with something that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, and in, in terms of that, so uh, there's also the idea that, um, you know, these larger firms that have, uh, you know, are able to charge lower prices and who have the scale to buy enough goods that suppliers are willing to give them lower prices, this is actually extremely efficient for the economy for several reasons. Number one, these larger firms actually create job stability for their employees because it's less likely that the company is going to go under and um, for them to get laid off and then all of a sudden these employees are going to have to be jumping from job to job. And uh, number two, it allows um, the suppliers to charge lower prices because um, they, the larger businesses are willing to buy in larger quantities, which reduces the um, per-purchase uh, cost, uh -huh. and reduces the, uh, and also it allows it gives the suppliers um, more stability as well with, for their employees and their business because they know that they are they have a reliable source of income from the larger businesses rather than a variable source of income from the smaller businesses. And uh, a quote or a quote here from the San Francisco Chronicle says that for decades, big box retailers such as Target and Walmart stores have used their extraordinary size to squeeze lower prices from suppliers, which have a vested interest in keeping them happy. This construes the relationship between Target and Walmart and their suppliers uh, in a negative light when actually uh, this is good for the economy and if you're looking at it from the supplier's perspective the reason they're lowering their prices is because the uh, Target and Walmart is actually uh, able to allow them to do that. They wouldn't actually lower those prices if it wasn't a good investment for them. Yeah, and the suppliers are, are willing to give a discount to these people because they're buying such a large quantity at one time. It, obviously, they're going to give them a good deal. If, if you're going to buy maybe 10 times as much at one time than a smaller uh, business would purchase, maybe over the course of 9 or 12 months, then you would rather have you would rather have that 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 large lump sum uh, payment right now and, and get rid of uh, or not get rid of but sell a lot of your uh, your inventory at one time so in them getting a lower price that that large business like you were talking about target or Walmart they can they can pass that on in a number of ways which we discussed in previous chapters but you know, passed on to their employees, uh -huh. to the consumers, uh -huh. uh, administrative costs. Yep. But although that we have all of these, all this evidence that suggests that big businesses such as Tar Target and Walmart giving discounts are a good thing for the economy, lawyers and um, regulators have continuously uh, created antitrust regulations that restrict companies from getting these discounts and sets a uh, price floor for, or excuse me, a price ceiling for what a supplier can um, discount. Yeah. Yeah. And um, why do you, why do you, why do you think that is? Do you, do you think that's because... What's going on with the economy? Because you know these regulators are thinking, okay, well, it's unfair for the smaller businesses, and maybe if there's some political incentive for them to 
you know, reduce the discount price because a bunch of small businesses are all, all of a sudden vote for them or something like that. Um, but they're basically saying that it's it's because they think it's unfair uh, in some way that the, that all of a sudden competition it's going to run competition out and then there's going to be no competition. But really, they're mis they're they're misconstruing what competition really means. They're they're not they're not understanding what the benefits of competition are, because the benefits of competition can be perceived by many people as bad things. Yeah, and what, to make matters worse, um, here it says that when um, the government can can show that a company is getting these discounts or has a certain percentage of the market share, um, it becomes a prima facie, uh, facie, facie case, which basically means that when a case is on its face, um, you know, a antitrust issue, such as this is a monopoly who has a larger control or a large firm that is getting these discounts, when on its face looks like that, then all of a sudden it shifts the burden of proof to the business to say, oh, no, that's not actually what's going on here. What's going on here is we're, we're just benefiting or we're not actually trying to be this large, you know, take a market share or reduce competition. We're just getting these discounts. And it, it just becomes impossible for the company to argue. Yeah. And... Um as far as the market share uh, goes, I remember Sowell talking about that. He, he or writing about that. He he was saying how just because a particular company has a large share of no, I said this wrong. Just because a company is big. And may produce, like for instance, a Walmart uh, may produce a large quantity of goods at a low price. Doesn't necessarily mean they're a monopoly. Right. He's, he's so what? It, it, yeah. These these regulators are defining what market share is. So you know, there's there's tons of options to define market share: percent of sales. Um, percent of, I guess, I mean, and, and then also there's another uh, caveat to it. It's like, okay, what are we going to define as the industry? What percent of sales, like percent of sales of what? You know, and, and I think a really good uh, example here is, uh, I mean, there's several really cool examples. For, uh, for example, the beer industry. So they put a they prevented Corona and Bud or Budweiser from buying Corona because uh, it will all of a sudden um, mean that Budweiser will control 46% of all the beer sales in the United States. And uh, what what does this really mean? And because there's all there's apparently 400 new brewers added to the industry a year, uh -huh. and this leaves out the fact that beer is an alcohol, but they're only construing it to beer sales. And so if they construe it to alcohol sales, um, we know that beer has actually been going downhill in terms of sales. And so uh, they're regulating this based off a very niche category when it could actually be a larger category and prevent this. Um, another really good example I think is even more is better than that is uh, where is it? It's like the shoes example. So I want to find these examples. Uh, and okay, well, yeah, go ahead. They're they're also not factoring in uh, substitutes for particular goods. They're being so narrow-minded that they're you know, what about beverages? Who controls the beverages market? They're just narrowing, uh, you know, they could do that for orange juice. They could say Tropicana is a monopoly. Yeah. 
They have the highest amount of sales. Even though there may be hundreds, I don't know, maybe thousands of orange juice suppliers in the country. Yeah, and they also have other cases where uh, the United States Supreme Court is construing market and control to just uh, very specific areas, too. So um, I know that there was a government regulation that was not allowing smaller paper uh, like newspaper agencies to band together to because it would take too much of a uh, they would control too much of their tiny local market like a small town um, and then I guess they were uh, concerned because now that the um, now that the newspaper controls that tiny market they're all of a sudden gonna not they're gonna restrict what's going to be in the paper and what's not but what happened was because these small businesses, smaller newspapers and local towns weren't allowed to band together, larger newspapers um, around the world and changes in technology allowing those newspapers to travel to different areas, um, like the New York Times or uh, other big newspapers, ran those smaller ones out of business because of these government regulations. Yeah. Yeah, because of those unintended consequences. So, so what they were trying to do with those uh, government regulations, uh, they were basically trying to manufacture competition. And I, I think that seems to be the main goal that uh, Sowell discusses towards the beginning of this chapter, Regulation and Antitrust Laws. He, he talks about how the main goal of antitrust laws is to create a perfect uh, competition perfect competition market and how uh, almost how this almost never happens and how yeah. there's always another outcome and how even though the stated goal which in many cases is protecting competition, it really ends up being uh, protecting competitors. Yeah, to add to that, another way that um, they're attempting to create competition is by setting an arbitrary price that a business is allowed to sell their product for, um, which is basically what communist Russia was doing for a really long time. Um, yeah. Basically, and, and Seoul talks about how no... Not even the smartest person or the smartest economist together could uh, understand the millions and millions of transactions that create competitive prices. And because they uh, government regulated certain industries such as electricity and set a uh, certain price, it was causing uh, widespread blackouts um, in California because they set the price higher than what would be or what would be competitive in during certain times because if you think about electricity it uh, like the amount of electricity that your house actually needs changes depending on the time of day uh, that you're like during the day right so like at night obviously there's way more supply of electricity because less people are actually you know using their supply uh, using their appliances and so because of that, at that, during those hours, the set price that the government regulated was way too high per kilowatt or whatever, per thing of electricity. And so when people, uh, so because the uh, companies that actually were producing electricity were having to charge these uh, higher rates at low demand times, it was causing these blackouts. Because they, um, you know, it still costs them a certain amount per um, per kilowatt, and now they're not getting the proper uh, profit margin per kilowatt hour, and so mm -hmm. they were having to tap into their generators and whatnot at you know poor times, and then all of a sudden uh, it was causing blackouts. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, you know, it, it, it's very hard to replicate 
the knowledge of all these different types of businesses in all these different parts of the country, all these different parts of the world. Uh, there's a lot of localized knowledge and expertise that comes with um, specialization of labor. Yeah, so uh, what, what Seoul was talking about in, when there were blackouts, it was because um, the suppliers of electricity weren't willing to pay for um, we're willing to pay for the electricity uh, at certain prices, right? So if they, so the government, if the government set the price lower than what it cost at the time um, that, at like high traffic times, for example, like during the day when a bunch of people are using their appliances, then um, if the electricity supplier were to use those arbitrary, arbitrarily low prices that the government set. It would make them lose money, and so that they, they would just black out the whole city because they otherwise they would just be losing money. And I heard about this a while ago, and um, it's funny that he talks about how uh, people contribute uh, construe these blackouts to mean that you know there's some other agenda going on rather than some economic thing. Because when I heard about them, I was told that it was because. Uh, the electric company, I think it was Enron, right, was doing this on purpose to, to uh, you know, cause people to have less electricity and then pay more um, than they would have. Mm-hmm. Because they're but, because they're greedy, right? Right, because they're greedy. But uh, here he's talking about no, this is just what was forced on them because otherwise they would just be losing money. Yeah, just like. Any other person would do, any normal person with uh, incentives who doesn't want to lose money would, would, would do the same thing. And uh, I think often a lot of the, the reasons why people make these uh, accusations for companies like Enron is because they think of uh, businesses and corporations as being non-human, not really having human incentives when in reality they, they operate uh, under the control of individuals and these individuals make mistakes and they uh, operate based on incentives just like the average consumer. I think that that is a great segue into our next chapter. I think so too. So what is the title of that one? I'm trying to... Uh, market and non-market uh, economies. I'll read the quote here at the beginning. Okay. In general, the market is smarter than the smartest of its individual participants. This actually kind of goes to what I was saying before and how um, these regulators are trying to create uh, arbitrary prices when they could never possibly know what these millions of transactions would have created a price outcome. Yeah, there's there's no way of knowing. So yeah, that that's a great quote. In general, the market is smarter than the smartest of its individual participants. So it doesn't matter uh, how many people you get together to form a committee, maybe a, a price committee or a production committee or you know any any type of organization or board of directors or individual to. Uh, basically control the, the economy and decide what is produced and at what price. There's no way that you can replicate the sort of market phenomenon that is created. Right, exactly. Um, and to kind of go back to your, your segue point about, um, you know, uh, businesses and how they're soulless and whatnot, um, if we if we look at what uh, CEOs have done, like for example, the CEO of um, McDonald's, apparently he would go into McDonald's stores randomly in the middle of the night, look at the burgers, and if uh, they were poor quality, he would throw them away. <laughs> yeah, uh, Colonel Sanders too. Uh, yeah. Remember that part? 
Par- cool. Apparently, uh, uh, the colonel used to roll up, you know, in his suit, cane, everything, and he would uh, he would throw out whole chickens. Yeah. He would just toss them. The the reputation of the business is so key to the business's success that they are willing to go in and do this because they know that their business is out there, um, especially the government, who have these poorly run organizations. And to that point, um, he talks about how the government has reduced its own competition or uh, in terms of government-run agencies because uh, they thought there was needless duplication of organizations within the government that they were pointless. And so because of this, and because of the government isn't creating competition for itself, um, it's allowing them to have poor um, service. For, uh, for example, the uh, mailing, right? So when mm-hmm. FedEx and UPS moves into uh, India, when there was only the India Post, all of a sudden, um, the India Post's number of mailed goods reduced by 50% within the year. Pretty incredible. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great example. And it's it's the main reason why the U.S. Postal Service is coined the nickname Snail Mail. Snail Mail. <laughs> just because it's just so... So much slower. There's a lot, uh, a lot more mistakes with shipments when compared to FedEx or UPS or I'm not sure if Amazon Prime has their own uh, drivers. I know Amazon utilizes. Uh, actually, I think they utilize the U.S. Postal Service, I but uh, they do. They, I, you know what? To tell you the truth. When I get Amazon packages, it's always a different delivery guy. So I don't know what they use. Well, what I think so. They utilize UPS and they utilize um, – they're kind of like Uber. Uber. You know how individuals can go and be on-call Amazon delivery people. They have both. Okay. It's actually a really cool business model. Makes sense because sometimes there's uh, kind of a strange-looking vehicle outside. Amazon is another really great example of supplying the market with more bid, more uh, employees. And, you know, obviously that Amazon is taking a huge market share of, um, of, you know, selling goods, retailing and stuff like that. And they're killing, they're actually killing the retail market. And so I wouldn't be surprised if the government tries to regulate them and tries to uh, prevent the retailers from going out of business. Yeah, the the president is. I I haven't read anything on it or watched anything, but I've heard that uh, there's some talk in the White House about imposing some regulation on Amazon that they're getting too big. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna I, look into it. I know that Trump really hates Amazon. Um, but I have a hunch that that's because the CEO of Amazon owns, is it U.S. Today, one of those major... Um, I think it might be the New York Times. I don't think, I didn't think it was, but it could, it could very well be the New York Times. But oh, it's the Washington Post. It's the Washington Post. You're right. Yeah, it is the Washington Post. So Makes sense. Apparently, um, the Washington is notorious for, you know, having articles about uh, that are negatively construed towards President Trump, and so my own my own theory is that he, Trump is really attacking uh, Amazon because of these articles that the Washington Post keeps, you know, creating. I think so. I think so. I think uh, I think if if it if that wasn't the case and maybe they weren't writing those articles, I don't I don't think he would care nearly as much as he does about that Amazon. Makes sense because 
you know, uh, Republicans tend to incite laissez-faire, but here we have Trump going against uh, general Republican views and trying to regulate a business. Um, and it's just, it's, it doesn't really paint the right picture. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing with Trump is he's, he, he seems like he's, uh, you know, pro-capitalism, free market kind of guy. But uh, then he, you know, goes along and talks about imposing tariffs and restricting Amazon and all of these things that are totally counter to what any free market oriented person would want. So he, I feel like he's a lot of, uh, there's particular issues where he's either, um, he's never in the middle. He's always one extreme or the other. Well, I would argue that the tariffs do support capitalism, the ones against uh, China at least, because China was imposing tariffs against us, right? And so wouldn't it be more of a free market if we had, um, if we were on an equal playing ground with China? For example, let's say they have a 0% tariff, then we would have a 0% tariff. They have 20% tariff on automobiles. We would have a 20% tariff on automobiles, or at least closer. Otherwise, you know, why would we ever ship to... Um, China, or why would we ever get goods from China? You're right. That's a good point. I haven't heard that argument made. So yeah, so let's say China has a particular tariff. Uh, why not they just match that? Yeah. yeah exactly. Why don't we just match that tariff? Hmm. That's a that's a that's an interesting argument. I've it's, never it, heard anyone bring that up either, but um, it makes more, the most sense to me. Because that's the closest you can get to a free market. Yeah. But then when does it end? You know? Do you think there's another way, maybe? I mean, if if we just kept on playing this game and matching each other's tariffs, then... When does it end? That's a good point. That's and good point. it's it's sort of the downfall for both of us. It's, it's kind of like, uh, we're not going to let you kill your economy, or I said that wrong. Uh, we may let you kill your economy, but we're not going to kill ours. So, yeah, I'm not sure. I It's something to look into. Uh, I haven't given it much thought, but that's that's interesting. Um, maybe there's... just have one last little segment here about winners and losers, and then... Um probably wrap this up. This yeah. Really um, basically, he just talks about how, uh, you know, there's always winners and losers, and that's just how it works. And that's how an efficient market uh, should work. He gives the example of how uh, there's a direct correlation, and it's not coincidental between um, the number of typewriters sold reducing dramatically when the Dell computer because it was being replaced, and how film dramatically declined when there was a rise of digital cameras. And so we have a lot of regulation that tries to prevent these things, but this is just natural, and this is how the world works. Um, and uh, forcing it otherwise is counter to the nest. Uh, the needs of the economy and counter to uh, an efficient economy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he says, uh, so Smith Corona, which is the typewriter producer, uh, Smith Corona had to be prevented from using scarce resources, including both materials and labor, to make typewriters. When those resources could be used to produce computers that the public wanted, wanted more. So it goes back to the baseline point that he makes in the intro, I think, or maybe chapter one, where he defines economics as the allocation of scarce resources that have alternative uses. 
And when there's a finite number of resources um, allowed to produce goods in an economy, um, why would it be better for those limited resources to be used to produce a writing machine that has way less features and uh, does not produce as much output as another writing machine. And the only argument that could be made for someone who uh, is, uh, is in agreement with that, with that argument, is that uh, no one would lose their job, basically. Uh, no one would stop producing. And the reality of the situation is uh, people would lose their jobs and people would stop producing only for a little while. And inevitably, those people who were making typewriters or maybe the people that owned the typewriter company, it's not like they just stop working forever. You know, they're going to find a way to get back into the market Maybe they become paper producers. Maybe they get involved in the computer business. And um, in effect, they, they use these scarce resources in a more efficient manner. And uh, I think it's just overall better for everyone. And even if it was worse for the uh, producers of typewriters which it isn't, but let's say that these people that made these Corona typewriters were permanently made worse off, it would still be better for the economy as a whole. Not that that's the case, because those people are put to a better use, but even if that was the case, um, it would still be better for a larger majority of the population. And there can be arguments made against that as far as, you know, utilitarianism goes and utility. That's a really good point, though. Yeah. I think that's definitely true in terms of the whole economy. Yeah. I mean, it, an easy point to make is, okay, well, are you using a typewriter? No, we're all on computers. Yeah. There's a reason for that, and there's a huge benefit for that. Um, you know, we don't have to lug around these giant typewriters. Everybody has a means of producing word on a paper now. You know, it's just limitless amount of benefits. So, from a utilitarian perspective, um, the cost that it it created for um, the people who worked for the typewriter companies and the typewriter company as a whole is a lot lower than the benefit from the amount of people that get to benefit from computers today. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. That's a great point. Uh, that's a good place to, to wrap up. I, I agree. I think so. Well, um, we'll catch you all next week where we start part three of um, basic economics, which is about work and pay. Yeah, we'll delve into uh, work and pay, which starts with chapter 10. We're going to go over productivity and pay, chapter 11, which brings us to minimum wage laws. Ooh. That's really going to be interesting um, because I've always been against minimum wage laws. I've, I've always been against minimum wage laws. And uh, I've met many adversaries. Everyone is an adversary in that, that it, in that department. Yeah. So it just creates tons of unemployment. Yeah. Businesses are, are going to take in incur the exact same amount of costs, uh -huh. whether or not they have to employ the same amount of people or not. Exactly. It's just a matter of it's a matter of balancing those costs. And we'll get into that. We'll, we'll get into that. I'm already I'm already itching. I'm already I already want to talk about it, but we'll hold off. We'll hold off till next week. And then chapter twelve, uh, special problems in labor markets. So that I 
yeah, I'm not sure what that's going to be about, but sounds interesting. All right. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us on episode two of Mike and Kit. Go ahead and uh, follow the channel if you made it all the way this far. Um, we'll be producing these podcasts every week till we get it uh, to the end of this book, and then we'll be moving on to our next uh, economic book. Yep, that's the plan. All right. Thanks for stopping by. Uh, Mike and Kit signing off.